you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. Councilman Mitch O'Farrell clears out people living at Echo Park Lake. His colleague, Mike Bonin, calls how it happened a disgrace. L.A. City Council at odds. And now that State Assemblyman Rob Bonta will be California's new Attorney General, what will it mean for Gavin Newsom, a potential recall, and Adam Schiff's political future? It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up, after USC agrees to pay more than $1.1 billion in total to patients of accused abuser Dr. George Tyndall, we'll hear from one former alum and survivor. That's coming up just ahead. But first, it is State of Affairs. That's our weekly peek at the politics of the Golden State. And on Wednesday, Gavin Newsom cleared his plate of political appointments when he named state assembly member and political ally Rob Bonta, Attorney General of California. Now, Newsom can turn his attention to a possible recall election and a whole lot of other stuff. So let's dive in with Zach Corser, Director of Claremont McKenna's Policy Lab and Visiting Assistant Professor of Government. Also, Christina Bellantoni, Journalism Professor and Media Center Director at USC Annenberg. Zach, Christina, welcome. Hi, A. Thanks. All right, Rob Bonta. So before we get into his record, what did you both think of Newsom's decision? Christina, you first. You know, it's a choice for the moment. This, uh, if you look at any major progressive legislative proposals over the last 10 years, you know, Bonta was either associated with them um, or, you know, in favor of them. He's somebody that looks at the criminal justice movement as something that um, really needs to have an element of social justice attached to it. And it just, it made a lot of sense from those perspectives. Some of the things that he's proposed, things he's championed, um, make him the person for the moment. And also, to put someone in that is history making, you know, Filipino, um, his parents were immigrants to this country. Uh, they lived in the Central Valley, understand the plight of farm workers. You know, there's just a lot of um, elements of his story that that make him very representative of California. Zach, what about you? Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, I, I wasn't surprised. I kind of expected it. I mean, looking at all the statewide offices uh, that Newsom has had the opportunity to appoint from. Martin Jenkins to the California Supreme Court, Alex Padilla to the Senate, Shirley Weber to Secretary of State. Uh, Newsom's priority seems to have been to diversify California statewide leadership. And I think this is another move in that direction. And, you know, while his being a a Filipino American may not have been decisive, uh, I do think the ongoing attacks on Asian Americans in San Francisco and the shootings in Atlanta did highlight uh, the need for diversity and, you know, his his background and, and profile, I think, um, will speak perhaps to Asian American voters. And, and of course, you know, Newsom probably has the recall in mind as well. Well, that's what I was going to get to, because Newsom got lobbied from a lot of people for that attorney general job, including uh, Nancy Pelosi was pushing for Congressman Adam Schiff to get that gig. So, Christina, why is Bonta the best choice for Newsom right now? 
he he represents um, a, a moment in this in this state and in this country. I think to to really amplify what the Biden administration is trying to do. And um, you know, certainly there were a lot of people who could have been good choices, but he reflects the priorities of the Newsom administration on this issue. He um, certainly follows in Becerra's footsteps, and it's a different posture at the moment, right? Becerra had to basically fight against the Trump administration as the foil to the Trump administration for four years. And this is now a movement where uh, you could see some dramatic progressive change, which is something that many Californians are demanding. Now, at the same time, you know, we know that Newsom was lobbied on all of these positions because this is a moment where somebody can get a political opportunity. Um, for Congressman Schiff, for example, it was clear he wanted the job. He heard, you know, Pelosi advocating for him. And he also really wants to have statewide office. So I think this was the, the job he was qualified for, the job mm. that he could have served in this moment. But at the same time, um, I, I don't think that's going to make his statewide ambitions go away at all. Yeah, Zach, I, I always like to think that people deep down have the greater good in mind, but I've been in this job too long not to know that a politician <laughs> decides for a lot of reasons that have to do with themselves. So for uh, for Newsom, why is Bonta the best choice now? Well, you know, in politics, oftentimes decisions are all about trade-offs. Uh, you know, I don't think it was necessarily a best choice, but uh, necessarily, but maybe the least worst choice in a lot of ways. Okay. You know, he he's he's going to offend some group or disappoint some group by any decision he makes. Um, but I think, you know, Nancy Pelosi was pushing for um, Adam Schiff, but I don't think there'll be any love lost between the two of them. You know, their relationship is unlikely to suffer. And I think the upside really, you know, in addition to uh, Bonta's profile on, on um, you know, racial inequity and, and justice going into um, dating back to, you know, reforms that were made this last year relating to police conduct. I mean, you know, he, Bonta really does seem like a, a solid choice that will appeal to both progressives and, and to Asian Americans in, in California. So, yeah. you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, we're second only to Hawaii for our Asian American population. And Christina, on on uh, Zach's point there, I mean, he, he has a very progressive record, especially on criminal justice reform. Um, he's going to be facing re-election uh, for this job in 2022. And while he's really never had much of a challenge for his assembly seat, will defending this particular job, the attorney general job, be easy or a lot tougher? You know, it, that's going to be a really interesting year for us, right? We, <laughs> we don't know what will be the outcome of, of what is likely to be a recall election on the ballot um, this year. But you think you, you could have Newsom on the ballot. You um, potentially could have uh, a number of competitive primaries, obviously, with our system in California, allowing anyone to run in the primary at, at all. Um, will you know, This is a sought-after job. There's only so many opportunities. And particularly with California politicians, there's an agitation among the younger generation, You know, both statewide officials, um, legislative officials, and then also in, in, in Congress, to see a shakeup, right? to see the next generation take over. Um, when you have some of the, the grip on the party, it's, it's really that older generation. So um, Bonta is of the, the new movement. And I, I would expect that if somebody did challenge him in that primary, that it would be competitive. But having the job is always a great platform to run from. And he has an opportunity to not only make a name for himself, but to get to be known by California voters in a way that will be helpful. Like whenever you get a statewide position, it will help you politically. Zach Corser, then, does this help Gavin Newsom with his progressive cred? In a way, considering that uh, if a recall election is going to happen, uh, he would want the total support of the California Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, Bonta's record on criminal justice and particularly given the enlarged role the attorney general will now play in police conduct uh, cases. I think this is a strong signal to progressive groups, you know, who are fighting to ref for reform that progress that Newsom's in their corner. And, I, you know, it, can, it may be a slightly defensive move, too, when. You're thinking about what Newsom's doing right now, which I think is trying to discourage everyone on the Democratic side from uh, joining in the recall effort by putting themselves up for uh, a possible replacement option. So that he's probably got that in mind as well. Christina, I mentioned how Nancy Pelosi was pushing for Adam Schiff, and it seemed like Adam Schiff maybe wanted to get some attention for this job. Why do you think he did not get as much traction for the AG job? You know, I mean, the, the pure and simple fact that you know, the the era of, of the white dude politician in the top job is, I wouldn't say ending, but it's waning. And, you know, California is an extremely diverse state, and there's just going to be pressure at every single level for every single 
elected official to represent that diverse state. And um, that's, you know, that is a knock against him through no fault of his own. But um, he also had a little bit of a polarizing, you know, demeanor just because he, like Becerra in some ways, um, was set up to be this foil of the Trump administration, you know, particularly on the first impeachment um, and uh, the Russia investigation that I think more people know him now and don't like him than people who were familiar with him and his record up until impeachment, if that makes sense. You know, and there are certainly plenty of Californians who uh, didn't like the the aggressive way that he went after the president. Um, at the same time, he has, you know, he, he can do anything he wants in politics, right? He will likely run for something. We know he has statewide um, intentions and um, certainly has a very strong name, ability to raise money. And he's popular among his Democratic colleagues. It just made me wonder when I saw Adam Schiff's name pop up for this. I mean, he could he could run for his house. I mean, it's what he's starting his eleventh term in the House, but he has to run every single two years. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I can imagine that it might get a little like t- just tiring to constantly have to run for his seat. Uh, Zach, what, what do you make of his interest? Because he was such a household name for a long time, and now that spotlight is off of him right now. Well, you know, I think some of this has to do with the dynamics of what's happening in the House of Representatives amongst Democrats. Uh, there, you know, look at Javier Becerra. He left the House of Representatives despite, you know, being on a leadership path. Uh, I think because, and and this has been comment on, there's a, there's a kind of brain drain that's going on with younger members of Democratic members of the House who are looking to be future leaders, but yet they have the same leadership in place every year. Uh, you know, Pelosi has, you know, managed to stand her ground for a very long time. And so I think Schiff may be becoming a bit discouraged about his options in the House of Representatives and basically looking to to move up in terms of other challenges here in California because they're just kind of closed off for him right now in the House. I've never spent a job at a job more than 20 years. So I'm wondering, Christina, I mean, <laughs> am I speculating too much or wondering too much as to Adam Schiff's intentions here? I mean, look, I, I wouldn't want to be a member of Congress right now. Um, and, you know, you have a narrow, a narrow hold um, uh, on power, um, you know, running statewide. We, you know, back when I was the editor of Roll Call, we looked at several members of Congress who actually went home to California to run for county supervisor roles. Um, that became a trend because you actually represent more people and potentially have more influence. But, um, you know, they're, they're, he's, he's unlikely to be the next Speaker of the House. And that is sort of the path he's headed unless he, right, that's the path he could have been on um, unless he goes to the Senate. And at the same time, you know, when you think about the sort of representation that everybody is aware is important right now, especially from our diverse state, that pathway is not super clear. And, um, you know, also I'm sure he has his heart in it and he could do great work as attorney general if that's something he wanted to do. I also wouldn't be surprised to see him run for governor someday. Yeah, all of those are a possibility. We're talking state of affairs with Zach Corser of Claremont McKenna College, also Christina Bellantoni from USC Enberg. Um, mentioned earlier about Rob Bonta's uh, record. He wrote legislation to end cash bail a couple of years back, but uh, last November, 55% of the voters decided to keep it. Uh, Zach, tell us what the California Supreme Court just ruled, because it kind of feels like it went back to ending cash bail. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Prop 25 failed, I think, largely to opposition from group progressive groups. You know, the ACLU, ACLU and NAACP and some other progressive groups feared that a data-driven approach to deciding whether or not someone should get bail um, or should go to jail wouldn't address racial bias. Um, but of course, there are, of course, a lot of people on the left who thought this should happen because they wanted to reduce the number of people who are in jails because they were unable to play a cash bail. So anyway, I mean, now, instead of a formula or an algorithm to make bail decisions, essentially, the Supreme Court has now handed these decisions to a judge. And the judge has to decide if there's clear and convincing evidence that shows that there's no other way to ensure someone will show up to their court appearance and not uh, present a danger to the public. And so judges have been handed uh, you know, a big responsibility now by the California Supreme Court. I guess one question will be, will this prove to be any more or less effective than what was proposed initially in Prop 25? Christina, when I saw this, I figured the bail industry would be furious. Are they? 
Yeah, I think they're they're really relieved about the ballot measure not passing, and you know the reporting that I've seen says you know this is something that they can live with. It's mm. not like they're going to be bankrupted, um, you know, by the by this decision. And um, when you look at some of the decisions made in other states, you know, Illinois eliminated cash bail entirely um, not that long ago. You know, this is the direction things are heading. Um, maybe not in every state, but um, certainly in states that have um, more progressive policies. And so I think the industry is probably taking a hard look and then recognizing that like there are going to be some things that need to adapt. All right. Now turning to this uh, week's big story in Los Angeles, been a big uproar over the sudden fencing off of Echo Park Lake and the removal of some 200 unhoused people who've made it, made it their home over the past year or so. Let's uh, hear from uh, Zarina Williams, uh, president of the Echo Park Neighborhood Council, echoing the sentiment of many who say the city should have done things differently. The first priority of it should have been, okay, there are humans who are here. Let's worry about them first and get them into permanent housing, permanent solutions for their life and their care. Let's do that. And then the park will be perfect forever because we'll never have to worry about people living in it. Christina, this move was led by L.A. City Councilman Mitch O'Farrell and now a few of his colleagues on the council, such as uh, Nithya Raman, uh, Mike Bonin, just uh, he called it a disgrace the way it was all handled. They voiced you know, uh, disapproval on, on all this. I got to ask, though, is it a little too little too late right now? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned a few times like the moment we're in, uh, both nationally and in the state, and having a massive police force, you know, forcibly remove people from their homes and, you know, arrest a few journalists accidentally in the process is, is not the best look. Uh, it always could be handled better. And um, the question is, for me, like what Mayor Garcetti is going to say and do about it. He, he sort of took a hands-off approach and uh, put it all on O'Farrell. And, and the decision, it seemed to me, was like sort of only slightly communicated, like people knew it was coming and didn't exactly know when. They didn't get a ton of notice. And um, this is the defining issue of, of Los Angeles, right? Um, people experiencing homelessness uh, is a crisis that that people have looked away from for a long time, and the pandemic made it worse, but also drew a focus away from it. And so now, um, what what do you really do to address this this massive um, human rights issue um, happening right here in, in our city? What kind of though hope does it give for anyone who who is really concerned about this to think that the LA City Council, uh, Christina, will be able to handle this now with Democrats? arguing with Democrats about how things are handled. Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's it's political in the same way as so many other things are. It, it feels to me that there's not an easy solution to any of it. Um, you know, we know that money that voters actually approved is very slow to uh, be implemented to, to help come up with permanent housing solutions and to look at, you know, both housing affordability issues and actual like housing people who are without homes right now. Um, so it's, I think it's, it's just really thorny and people recognize that it is extremely bad uh, reflecting on the city that this is a problem that we have here. And so of course they're going to point fingers and say that it could be um, handled better. And it's just a question of who has the best ideas and how can you implement them while doing the absolute least harm to anyone. All right. One more thing before the weekend, uh, just to remind everyone where the Gavin Newsom recall effort stands. As of March 11th, just under 1.2 million signature, signatures have been verified by the Secretary of State. The recall is uh, 300,000 signatures short, but April 29th is the deadline. Even Gavin Newsom sounds resigned uh, that uh, there will be a recall election. As far as who Newsom will face, we know it'll likely be the person he beat in 2018, John Cox and former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, both Republicans. Uh, so what about running another Democrat? Now, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this, and this is what she said. I think it's an unnecessary notion. I don't even think it rises to the level of an idea. Uh, I do think that we will defeat uh, the initiative, not because of who started it, the Trumpites, but because of the governor's uh, leadership to help and meet the needs of the people of California. All right, so that's yes, Nancy Pelosi. Now, in 2003, Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante ran in the Great Davis recall. It didn't work. Uh, Schwarzenegger won. Uh, Christina, what are the chances of a Democrat in 2021 uh, trying to trying to move in on Gavin Newsom into the recall race? Yeah. 
you know, and this is my first taste of like, you know, big politics as a young journalist covering this, and, you know, the, the no on recall, yes, on Bustamante campaign still sort of rings in my ears. Gray Davis is an extremely different politician from Gavin Newsom, right? And while um, the problems Newsom faces are very uh, visceral, and I think people can relate to him um, and being mad at him in a pandemic, much more so than sort of rolling blackouts and issues that weren't necessarily as tangible for anyone in California that's had to be home for a year. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, you know, Newsom is very talented, very popular, has huge force behind him. In addition to that, the national um, sort of the party is going to coalesce behind him. You've already seen that with Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, the president um, is going to come to his aid, whereas the national parties on both sides really didn't get as involved um, with Davis. So you know, Pelosi's probably right. And yeah. it doesn't make sense to have a feeding frenzy um, in the Democratic Party at a time when you just need people to be united against your governor who, before all of yeah. this, was popular and has a national trajectory. Unfortunately, got to leave it right there. Christina Bellantoni, Zach Corser, thank you very much. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. I'm LA's senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. All right, a warning here. Our next segment is about sexual assault, and some comments may not be appropriate for all listeners. Former USC campus gynecologist George Tyndall is accused of abusing hundreds of students who came to his clinic for medical care. The university received multiple complaints over the years, and when a nurse at the clinic finally took the complaints to the school's rape counselor, Tyndall was put on paid leave and quietly ushered out, his public record unscathed. Then came the 2018 expose in the LA Times, blowing the story of Tyndall's abuse wide open. He has since been charged with felony sex abuse. And now, after apologizing, USC has agreed to pay $852 million to survivors of his abuse. That's on top of an earlier $215 million payout from a federal class action settlement in 2018. Audrey Nofziger is one of the plaintiffs in the most recent lawsuit. Audrey, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Audrey, you were a law student at USC when you visited the clinic in 1990. What happened when you went to see Tyndall for an appointment? When I went to the clinic, uh, Dr. Tyndall invited me into the examination room, which was also his office. He locked the door. He had me undress and get on the table. Um, He examined me without gloves. He gave me a diagnosis of having a disease that he needed to treat me for and wanted me to come back on multiple occasions. And not knowing much about exams or any of those types of things, I believed him and trusted him. He um, proceeded to tell me that he was doing a study and wanted to take photos. Um, He had a tripod and a camera, and he took a series of photographs. And then he, um, at some point, he had darkened the room, and he went to the back of the room where I couldn't see him, and I was still laying on the table and my feet in the stirrups, and he started telling me a story about his uh, time in the Philippines 
and how he was in a bar and the men took a woman and passed her around and they all performed oral sex on her. And he was telling me how much she enjoyed it. And I was completely shocked and afraid. I thought he was he was coming on to me or he was going to do this to me. Or I, I didn't know. I could not understand why this man, this doctor, was telling me this disgusting story. And the thing is, you knew the door was locked. You mentioned how, I mean, it, you, 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 you know it was locked, so you knew you were basically trapped in there. I felt so afraid. I felt paralyzed, like I was just going to crawl up into a little ball. I just wanted to disappear. That's how I felt inside my body. And he's back against the room telling the story, and I can't see him. I can't see what he's doing. And then he continues to ask me over and over again, Audrey, what do you think about that? Audrey, what do you think about that? It was really scary. You mentioned that he said that you had a disease that he wanted to treat you for. Did he ever tell you what this disease was and how he, how he knew? He did. He told me um, I had HPV, and he was going to treat me for that, and I'd have to come back multiple times to be treated. At one of those exams, he sent off a lab work, and you know, I didn't recall any of that, but I took my records with me when I graduated in 92. And when the story broke, I opened my records, and eventually um, I saw his name, of course, in my records and a lab report that came back negative for HPV. So you you didn't have what he says you had? I believe I never had it. He had false diagnosed other women that I know with the same thing, and it was baloney. It was his way of getting us to keep coming back. Did you did you ever have a moment, Audrey, where you realized that your visit was in fact abusive? Because I know that many of Tyndall's patients were young. They were you know, freshmen or sophomores in college, so maybe 18, 19 years old. And then they might have felt their visits were, were not right, but maybe they felt they had no other previous medical experience. Maybe they hadn't been to a gynecologist before. So when did you realize that your visit was in fact abusive? I realized it the day I saw the LA Times story. That was the moment in time where I realized he's a predator. I'm one of the first girls he put his hands on. This is all part of a horrible, horrible, horrible situation that USC let go on for almost 30 years. It was unbelievable. And that's all of those decades. Based on what happened to you that day, all of those decades of trauma are all probably cascading on you at that moment. Absolutely. It's the moment I'll never, ever forget where I was and what was going on. I went straight to where my records were. I knew I, it just felt like it was my lifeline, my records. I could prove that I saw this man. I'm a lawyer, right? I'm looking for the evidence. I can prove that I saw him. I can, I can show somebody. Someone will believe me. I never told anyone. I thought nobody would believe me. It was me, and it was him, and he was a doctor, and I was a nobody. I was a student. So I was so thankful to have my records, and then I felt encouraged that I could tell my story and, and be believed. We're talking to Audrey Nossiger, one of the hundreds of women who say they were abused by USC gynecologist George Tyndall. You mentioned how you're a lawyer. You were studying law at USC. Uh, Now you're senior deputy district attorney for Ventura County and and spent many years prosecuting sex crimes. How has this experience changed how you think about your own work? I'll tell you, the judicial process is very unkind to uh, trauma victims and sex crime victims. And our responsibility to to treat them with kindness and respect at all stages of justice. Now, USC has agreed to a settlement. Uh, It's uh, reportedly one of the largest sex abuse payouts in in higher education history. Considering your experience, Audrey, I mean, how does a settlement feel for you? For me, after fighting with USC for three years, I do feel a sense of justice. I was deposed by USC and their lawyers. They did their best to make me feel like a dirty piece of trash. I withstood that, endured it with my sister survivors. I feel like um, we have been heard, I have been heard, that their dirty secrets have been uncovered and that they are now trying to atone for that. I think that there is a sense of justice in that. If we hadn't fought them, there wouldn't be a record of all the people that knew about this man and covered in life for him. And that is now out there and and people will be able to get to that information. And I'm hoping for more justice that the attorney general for California or the new DA in Los Angeles will do what's right and investigate those people and bring them to justice and bring us a full measure of accountability. Because he, you know, one man victimized thousands of women, but he didn't do it alone. He only got away with it because USC let him get away with it. That's Audrey Nossiger, one of the hundreds of women accusing George Tyndall of abuse, and she's a plaintiff in a settled suit against USC. Audrey, thank you very much. 
You're welcome. Thank you for um, giving the story the attention. I appreciate it. It'll help other women. It has been a year since COVID-19 first shut down L.A. So to mark that anniversary, we're checking in with small business communities in our area to hear how they've weathered the pandemic. Today, we visit the Magnolia Park neighborhood in Burbank. KPCC's Caroline Champlin says that mile-long strip of stores, the virus crushed businesses. Others, though, are trying to bounce back, and a few have actually thrived. The business hub of Magnolia Park is centered around Magnolia Boulevard in a mostly middle-class part of Burbank. Besides a Porto's bakery, it's known for antiques, memorabilia, independent bookstores, thrift stores, and the blast from the past toy store. We get over here, this is our sci-fi area. That's co-owner Larry Ross. He points to shelves of action figures being picked over not by kids, but nostalgia-seeking adults, the usual clientele. We've got our shelves of Power Rangers, He-Man, Ninja Turtles. The space is huge, and for a Thursday, it's crowded. Ross and I duck into the break room to talk about how business has been during the pandemic. I hesitate to say this because I'm aware of how tough it's been for so many people, but our business has increased a great deal. In fact, it's doubled. Coronavirus has been good to him, he says. I don't know exactly what to ascribe that to other than There's nothing else to do. Ross says his success is not representative. Businesses around him are struggling to pay the rent. And this isn't just a pandemic problem. Years before the coronavirus hit, there was already a Save Magnolia Park campaign. Some of those quirky mom-and-pop type shops can't make it in the steeper rent world of the gentrified area. But the pandemic definitely made things harder. Ross says, if I want to know what the last year has been like for most businesses in this area, I need to go across the street to a vintage clothing store that's been around for almost 50 years. It's called Junk for Joy. It's uh, a lot slower. I'm here by myself. Normally, I would have at least one other employee. That's Kathleen Lenahan, the owner. Her specialty is assembling period-authentic outfits, like the sunglasses Brad Pitt wore in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. These are from 1976. They have the original sticker on them. When the pandemic started, business dried up. Lenahan had to shut down for six months. She reopened last October, but could only afford to by giving up half of her space to another business. Lenahan says it was only recently that customers started coming back in numbers, like musician Trip Denham. He's here shopping for a 70s soul outfit. So we have these uh, nice brown bell bottoms, um, which... I love these. With the help of government loans and some longtime customers, it's looking like Junk for Joy will survive the pandemic. Good. Did you want to get that shirt? $5. But other small businesses in Magnolia Park have closed for good. The local merchants association told me of five. Although driving down the street, you can see more than that, boarded up or empty. One of the businesses that closed was a yoga studio called Yoga Blend. I owned it and operated it for 16 years, almost. And it was my baby. It was my, it was my everything. Christy Hicks opened in Magnolia Park because it felt like a small town, sort of like the South where she's from. When the pandemic hit, she closed the studio and tried teaching yoga over Zoom. A disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster. Some people went online, but some people just didn't want to do that. She lost three quarters of her students and of her revenue. She got a government relief loan, but the next few months were still intense. I mean, I had this lease looming over my head and, you know, I couldn't pay my landlord. And I'm putting in personal money and I'm like, I can't do that. I got to pay off all these loans. Like, I got to. Even as she fought to keep the business, Hicks had a hard time imagining reopening one day, especially at limited capacity. Thinking about the anxiety of trying to do yoga with masks and no touching, she got nauseous. And it was, that was the answer. I was like, clearly, this is not right for me. If my body's having this kind of violent reaction to what it would look like if I reopened, I was like, I got to get out of this. In June, she gave up her lease and moved back home to Tennessee. Hicks is still teaching a few yoga classes online, but the yoga blend business is over. And she misses Magnolia Park. Things have changed so much, and I just, it just breaks my heart to think of, like, my little gym in L.A., that place that was so special to me. 
Everyone I talked to, including Hicks, expects Magnolia Park to make a comeback, at least financially. But they're worried about lost businesses being replaced with chain stores and potentially an end to that small town vibe. I'm Caroline Champlin. When the pandemic began and all the businesses shut down last March, um, I, I jogged through Magnolia Park every morning, really, really early. And it was really a bummer to see as time went on, as the months went on, all of these shops that I'd run past just get boarded up and get all their signage taken down. It was really, really depressing. So it's good to good to hear that uh, hopefully there'll be a comeback there for Magnolia Park. Uh, more Take Two coming up in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. I feel in the Hispanic communities, we're just told to kind of just keep going. Don't feel. I'm LAS mental health reporter Robert Garova. Getting mental health care is often overwhelming. If you have a patient that was admitted for a serious suicide attempt, if they haven't been suicidal for 24 hours, the insurance company is like, get them hell out. My reporting helps unravel the knot by focusing on the stories of people struggling to make the mental health care system work for them. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. We're closely following return to school plans. Some big local districts are going to start welcoming students back to campus next week, including in Pasadena, Downey, and Santa Clarita. So will L.A. County's second largest district, that's Long Beach Unified. The big one, though, is L.A. Unified. Now, that district won't start reopening campuses until April 12th, but parents already have a lot of questions about the plan. KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes has some answers. In fact, many of them are right now on LAIST.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. His latest there is called Everything We Know About LAUSD's Plan to Reopen Schools in April. Kyle, welcome back. Hi, Ait. All right. So remind us again of uh, LAUSD's a basic plan for reopening. What schools will open when? Well, it'll start, it'll kind of go in waves here. So it'll start with the first wave on April 12th, which will be a select few elementary schools and early education centers, which serve students from ages two to four. Um, Those schools, it's really just a handful of the district schools on the 12th that week. And then the week after that will be most of the rest of LAUSD's elementary schools. Um, And that will be followed on the 26th of April uh, with middle and high schools. So about two weeks until most elementary schools are open, a little more than that, and then about a month until middle and high schools reopen. Elementary students are going to be on campus every day, but only with their teacher for about half of that time, although students will have the option to have uh, uh, adult supervision uh, provided by LAUSD for part of the other part of the day. Um, And then middle and high schoolers will be on campus every other day, and they're in that arrangement that's being known as Zoom in a Room, where they're basically continuing their... uh, uh, online learning schedules, uh, but mostly uh, doing it just from a, a room on the campus uh, okay. every other day during during the future here. And again, that's why you put together this uh, post on LAS.com, everything we need to know about LAUSD's uh, plan to reopen schools in April. So everyone go right to it. But instead, uh, for a second here, we can kind of talk us uh, th- our way through it. So let's answer one question here. For starters, a few weeks away from reopening, anything LAUSD parents need to know about uh, how to get ready uh, right now? Yes. So the first thing is that parents need to fill out what the district is calling a reopening survey. Um, and it's available at reopening.lausd.net. And they call it a survey, but I, I think it probably is more accurately described as a re-registration for students because you're actually making a choice between in-person hybrid instruction, if that's what you want your student to receive, versus remaining virtual. The district needs to know this answer so that they can make their plan. Um, we're, we're looking at response rates right now 
now, depending on the grade level, between two-thirds and uh, three-quarters of the district's parents have responded, but the district is still saying to that, that extra third or a quarter of parents, get your surveys in. We need these to make plans. The second big thing that you need is to go and take a COVID-19 test the week before your student returns to campus. This baseline testing is mandatory. Now, LAUSD is offering these tests. They provide them themselves. They have that, you know, famously, they have a, a contract with a, a provider called Summer Bio that promises quick turnaround on their testing. And once schools reopen, uh, regular testing is also going to be required. So there's going to be this, this baseline testing in order to go back to campus and then future testing once schools and campuses are reopened. On the future testing, Kyle, because there are a ton of kids in LAUSD, what, maybe 300,000 in elementary grades alone. Yeah. How often is that supposed to happen? Yeah, it's supposed to happen every two weeks as of right now for all students and staff. Now, the re requirements for testing will relax a little bit if or, or maybe at this point when L.A. County downshifts from the red tier to the orange tier. But Superintendent Austin Butner has talked about this, and he actually says the district wants to make this easy in LAUSD. When students are back at schools, we'll actually bring it to the classroom. Students will literally be tested at their desk three-minute interruption in the class, so it won't be interrupting the instructional schedule of their day at school. Quick, clean, safe, uh, and we'll be out of the way. Now, I know he said literally at their desk. I, I kind of wonder if they'll actually just have it done in the play yard as opposed mm -hmm. to in an enclosed space. But anyway, LAUSD does say in any case that its mobile testing teams can can work through three entire schools in a single day once this, once this gets underway. So Kyle, what are the biggest differences students are going to notice when they go back to campus? Well, the first, it starts right at the entrance. They're going to be at one campus I tour. There are going to be multiple entrances, which is a change from their normal operations. Once you get to the the gate uh, of the of the school campus, uh, students are going to have to flash something that's called a daily pass, which is a an online QR code that you go to a website that the district provides. You fill it out and say, basically, I don't have COVID-19 symptoms. That produces a QR code that you produce at that point. You can show it on your smartphone. The student will or, or or you can print it out and, and give it to the attendant at the gate who will then check your temperature. Another difference there with one of those no contact thermometer, it looks like a thermometer gun. Um, and then once you get onto campus, there are going to be directional markings on the floor, you know, saying walk this direction, don't walk the other direction. It's interesting, the teachers union agreement actually specifies that if an area is less than six feet wide and doesn't allow for, for uh, that amount of distance between students as they walk, that there's only supposed to be one-way traffic in a hallway or a breezeway like that. Now, once you get into a classroom, the thing that struck me, and I think everyone who walks into, especially the youngest grade classrooms, the rooms are really stripped down. I mean, not only do you have desks that are spaced out six feet apart, um, but if you think about what makes a kindergarten classroom a lively place, you know, books and toys and yeah. the play kitchen and a circle time rug. You know, they've removed the rugs from, from most LAUSD classrooms, uh, books, toys, high contact, high touch surfaces. They're all gone. Students are going to have to sit at a desk with a, a Tupperware of their own dedicated box of supplies. So really big visual differences that you'll notice there. How's it going to work for elementary uh, classes, elementary grade classes, Kyle, if some kids are virtual and some kids are back on campus? Yeah, this is one of the biggest questions parents are asking because this could have a really big impact on the experience student have, particularly if they have to give up their current teacher. Um, and so that's what I get a lot of the questions are. Am I going to be able to keep my own teacher? There is no simple answer to that question. And it all depends on how many students your teacher's classroom can hold based on that six foot rule between desks and students seated. And it, it also depends on how many kids in your student's class choose to come back to campus. So if you just to make an example here, if you take a class of 24 students and every single one of those 24 chooses to come back to a classroom that can hold, say, 14 students at a time, well, they just simply divide into, you know, a morning and afternoon cohort of in-person learning. Well, what if one student in that example chooses virtual? Well, that student probably is going to have to switch classrooms. Yeah. Well, what if six or seven out of those 24 in our example goes virtual? It gets even more complicated from there 
there and the, the task is going to follow the principles to figure all of this out. It's going to be a really complicated jigsaw puzzle. And depending on hesitancy about returning to classrooms, we see in low income neighborhoods, particularly, there's a lot of hesitancy yeah. about going back in person. Uh, this is going to be highly variable depending on the campus that you're at. Uh, rapid fire, really quick. Uh, playgrounds, open or closed? Not as of now. All right. Parent volunteers going to be on campus? Uh, the district is working on a plan, so potentially yes. And what if a student starts to feel not so good? They start to feel sick. Well, a wouldn't you like to know? You're yes. just going to have to read my FAQ on LAS.com. What a pro. That's Kyle Stokes. <laughs> He's KPCC's <laughs> education reporter. And uh, the FAQ on LAS.com is called Everything We Know About LAUSD's Plan to Reopen Schools in April. You should read it if you're a parent of any children anywhere in LAUSD. Kyle, thanks a lot. You betcha. All right, I don't know if anybody has noticed, but things are starting to open up around Southern California, L.A. and Orange County. Things are starting to feel like like a big giant cruise ship and turning it around. Yeah, it's slow and it could be painful, but it looks like it's starting to head in the right direction. And that means that a place like Disneyland is getting ready to open end of April. But when it eventually opens sometime in the future, there might be more of Disneyland to enjoy. We'll find out all about that when Take Two continues. Stay with us. I feel in the Hispanic communities, we're just told to kind of just keep going. Don't feel. I'm LA's mental health reporter, Robert Garova. Getting mental health care is often overwhelming. If you have a patient that was admitted for a serious suicide attempt, if they haven't been suicidal for 24 hours, the insurance company is like, get them the hell out. My reporting helps unravel the knot by focusing on the stories of people struggling to make the mental health care system work for them. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. Disneyland is reopening at the end of April, but uh, can only operate at uh, as low as a 15% capacity. So you know that this will have an impact on the number of rides that will be open, on also the kinds of foods that will be offered, and how many people can queue up uh, for any one of these things. Now, if this isn't enough news about the happiest place on Earth, just yesterday, Disney officials announced plans to renovate its resort in Anaheim. That's right, the one right here. It's a project called Disneyland Forward. We're going to get into all this with LAist culture editor Mike Rowe. Now, Mike, uh, first, when it comes to rides and the fun that Disneyland has to offer, what can we expect on April 30th when it all opens up? You know, things can always change, but we have confirmed that many fan favorites are going to be part of the reopenings, both at Disneyland and California Adventure. Uh, you're going to be able to do Pirates of the Caribbean, Space Mountain, uh, both of the Star Wars rides, as well as rides more suited to younger visitors like It's a Small World and Peter Pan's Flight. So there's stuff coming back and, and uh, available. What are the safety guidelines, uh, Mike? Because I got to admit, like, if I'm going to go on Space Mountain, I want to be at the front. I, I just want to be at the front. <laughs> and if I'm screaming, uh, you know, it's going to be behind me. I, you know. You know, you're going to have a little <laughs> bit more space around you now. Okay. You'll need to make some advanced reservations, wear a mask, and keep your distance from your fellow attendees. Uh, since Disney World reopened in Florida, they've been enforcing that with park employees sort of keeping an eye out for when people not in the same party start getting too close together. They're also expected to change the loading patterns for rides so you won't be seated too close to anyone else. Um, they, they haven't exactly sort of details yet, but it might be like every other row, or they might have uh, one party in a ride vehicle. Um, safety concerns also mean that you're going to have to keep your distance from Mickey and from the other park <laughs> characters. Uh, they're going to have photo ops, but you'll have to wave and take pictures from a distance. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And also, because of the large crowds that gather, no parades and no fireworks shows. At the end of every day, Mike, the, at the, whoever operates or cleans up Space Mountain, they're going to be picking up so <laughs> many masks that are going to fly off of mm -hmm. people's faces. It's just going to happen. All right, now about that capacity of 15%, uh, that could change if Orange County moves into a less restrictive 
district here, if the park can admit more people, uh, how might that change things? Yeah, that's right. Like Orange County's numbers mean they might be able to move to the Orange reopening tier as soon as next week. That means they'd have 25% capacity instead of 15%. And if they make it all the way to the yellow tier, that would be 35% capacity. It's still a lot smaller crowd than during normal times, but we're also expecting reduced capacity on rides because of COVID safety precautions. So we'll have to see how those factors both influence how long it takes you to get on that Space Mountain ride. Disneyland has been closed a long time. Like, I mean, what does the reopening mean for the city of Anaheim and the people in the area who, who work at Disneyland? You know, they're bringing back thousands of local residents. Around 10,000 people are coming back to work now because of Disneyland reopening. Uh, along with that boost directly from Disney itself, it also means increased business for local hotels. Uh, you know, visitors are discouraged, though, from visiting from too far away, and they're only going to allow California residents in at first. Uh, also, there's a, currently a travel advisory that you shouldn't travel too far from home. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays together, but it, it really means a lot to the local community. All right, now to this uh, Disneyland Forward project. Not a ton of details uh, on it uh, yet, but what's the plan that we know so far and, and, and why now? Because I mean, it seems like a very tricky time to start thinking about something new. It's true, but I, I think that like with the slowdown we've had with Disneyland, it seems like they want to get bigger and better than ever. Disney's trying to squeeze everything they can out of this park, so they're gonna they're looking at adding more hotels, stores, restaurants, rides. Uh, the plans show everything being more tightly integrated, with less of a distinction between where we have a park and a store. They want to put some new theme park lands where we currently have parking lots. Uh, you know, Disney has a lot of popular movies that don't have rides at Disneyland yet, while other Disney parks have stuff like a Frozen Land and Zootopia Land. Uh, um, there's even the Peter Pan's Neverland they're working on elsewhere. Uh, but all those could end up becoming part of Disneyland as well. That's what Disney is teasing. Uh, maybe we'll have the cool Tron light cycle ride take place here. Ooh, I wonder what would be a land that would be put in there. I mean, there's so many possibilities. <laughs> like, I mean, wait, wait, wait. So Marvel is owned by Disney, right? Mm -hmm. Can they put a Wakanda in there? Oh my That's gosh! Good, I would love that. They, I mean, Marvel Land <sighs> is set to be the next land to open up, and it was about to open last summer, but, but then the pandemic kept it delayed. So uh, that's on the way too. All right, final question, Mike. I mean, how soon are you planning to going back to Disneyland? I mean, and, and what do you hope to do first? Say, say you're the first one in the park, <laughs> and you get to like just choose the first thing you do. What's what's it going to be? You know, I'm really excited about getting on Rise of the Resistance again, which is a great new Star Wars ride. But they actually just are opening a revamped Snow White ride as part of the reopening oh, wow. at the end of the month. So I'm very curious to see that for the first time. I would always choose Small World. I know it's corny. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's just like, you know, it's my childhood, Small World. So that's it's the, great. Yeah, that's what I would pick. Uh, that's uh, LA's culture editor, Mike Rowe. Mike, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you. And as always, you can read more about Disney's reopening plans on LAist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. Or not that Disney needs my help on anything when it comes to promoting themselves and coming up with ideas, but so how about this? A, a, a split land, Wakanda and Westview, the city that Wanda <laughs> put under her spell in WandaVision. You see, planning these kinds of adventures, I mean, that that is my true calling. All right, uh, thanks uh, for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back uh, next week. Thanks uh, for listening. Talk to you then. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.